Welcome to episode 11 of China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. Today's topic is Taiwan, the wealthy island which lies off China's southeast coast. Although it's self-governed, China regards it as a breakaway province, which is destined to be reunited with the mainland. China and Taiwan separated in 1949, when the defeated nationalists fled to the island's capital, Taipei, at the end of the Civil War. Relations have been tense ever since, particularly since the United States supplies Taiwan with weapons and military know-how. Although it has a relatively small population of only 24 million people, Taiwan is vitally important to the global economy because it produces components for computers. Well, joining me now to discuss the Taiwan-China relationship is Professor Christopher Hughes from the Department of International Relations at the London School of Economics. Christopher, on behalf of the SOAS China Institute at the University of London, welcome to China in Context, and thanks for joining today's discussion. Now, you've written recently that the most likely cause of a war between the major powers in the Indo-Pacific is an invasion of Taiwan by China. Can you talk us through the background and give us your assessment of what might happen? Sure. I think I'll start off, though, by saying, qualifying that a bit. I'm not sure if I said an invasion of Taiwan. I think a conflict over Taiwan is an important distinction because, as I'll say in a minute, it's more likely this will happen by accident, I think, which could lead to an invasion. I think to understand the underlying tension, you've just got to look at the longer political dynamics behind this. There's a ridiculous situation where the international agreements that are there, what we call the status quo to preserve the stability around Taiwan were put in place in the 1970s when Taiwan was an authoritarian dictatorship. Uh, and they're still there, one country, two systems, the communiques between China and the US were all put there in the 1970s. Uh, and now the situation has changed so much with Taiwan's democratization that it doesn't fit. And so to talk about the status quo is pretty misleading. There's no point in blaming the president of Taiwan as a secessionist or something, or independence activists. It's public opinion and elections which show how the psychology, the emotions, the identity politics in Taiwan have moved so far now from that so-called status quo that it's not really sustainable. So how do you read the rhetoric that we're hearing from uh, the People's Republic of China and the Taiwan side at the moment? Because there's been a, a lot of sharp exchanges of words recently. Xi Jinping has painted himself into a corner because he's presented himself as a strong leader China's rise, you know, the China dream, the strong army dream. And that's playing to a kind of nationalistic, militaristic base in Chinese public opinion. So he can't afford to look weak on Taiwan. So as things develop and elections happen in Taiwan that don't go in the way he wants, he has to respond. And he has to respond in a way that fits his nationalistic, militaristic rhetoric. And that's what he's been doing. So the threats are not particularly new, I must say. The, the, the um, resort to force has always been part of PRC policy. 
I think what's more new is the actual activities we see now around Taiwan with the Air Force and the Navy. Well, absolutely. In April 2021, there were a record number of Chinese military jets flying over Taiwan. An aircraft carrier, a Chinese aircraft carrier appeared in the region and the Americans were doing joint exercises with an aircraft carrier strike group and indeed uh, an amphibious assault group. So uh, it does look as though the tension has increased during this year. Yeah, so there were 25 incursions yesterday into Taiwan's air defence zone, 25 in one day, and that's become the standard pattern now. So it's really stepped up considerably. That, of course, is nothing like an invasion, though. An invasion would be a completely different kettle of fish. The scale that's involved, it would be um, identifiable a long way off because of the resources that would need to be mobilized on the mainland. If you think of the D-Day attacks on France and so on, you know, I mean, it's that kind of huge operation you're talking about. So what you're seeing now is something different. It's more of psychological warfare. Um, which is aimed at, again, shaping public opinion in Taiwan and deterring people from voting and supporting the Democratic Progressive Party. Well, it, you know, this hasn't worked in the past. In fact, in the past, when China has stepped up its military pressure, it's encouraged people to vote against China and to be scared and, and show their defiance rather than um, give in. This has happened many times since the mobilization of the PLA Navy in, yeah, in uh, 1996, when they had the first presidential election in Taiwan. So it's pretty counterproductive in terms of shaping public opinion inside Taiwan. So, so looking at the political situation inside Taiwan, then, China is absolutely adamant that Taiwan must not declare independence. Yet, as we know, it is a self-contained self-governing entity, what would independence actually mean? How would independence be different to what we've got at the moment? Well, it's a good question. And I often say we shouldn't even use this word independence because it's a bit meaningless. What we're really talking about is diplomatic recognition. It's a political diplomatic concept, a legal concept that um, the US does not recognize Taiwan and, and neither does any other major power recognize Taiwan diplomatically. That doesn't mean that Taiwan doesn't exist. We say it has de facto independence. Uh, and you could say that's actually de jure independence because Taiwan enjoys nearly all of the legal relationships with other states that a state that is recognized enjoys. So I think, but for China, the PRC, Recognition is, the, is a red line because it's, it's more symbolic than real. Uh, obviously, it means a lot to the people in Taiwan to be recognized as an independent state, like it does to all of us around the world, to not be recognized is demeaning. Um, but in the PRC, it's the other way around. That act of recognition is a huge blow against Chinese nationalism and China's pride uh, and would be a source of humiliation a legitimacy crisis for the leadership. So we're really talking about diplomatic recognition more than anything. It's very concerning, isn't it, that uh, there could be a conflict over the issue of symbolism. 
But if there was a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, and fortunately, from what you say, we're some way off that at the moment. But if there was a Chinese attack on Taiwan, what do you think would be the reaction from other countries, specifically members of the Quad, the Informal Defence Pact? Well, they would be called on, first of all, to support the US in terms of logistics and intelligence, possibly information warfare and so on. And if you look at them, they're actually quite well placed to do a lot of that without actually sending in military hardware, especially Japan, for example, if you look at its defense profile and what it's invested in, in uh, jamming technologies and things like that, and also providing logistical base support, that kind of thing. It would depend on how the situation escalated on whether they would get more involved. Um, we would hope that, that a, a show of US strength would deter China. But if the conflict escalated and became more serious and it looked like the US was losing, then it would be hard for them to stay out. Now, Japan has changed its constitution or reinterpreted it, as they would say, so it is legally able to come to the aid of the US. It's not bound by its constitution from doing that as it was in the past. Um, the Australians too are fully engaged um, in military exercises and so on with the US. And the other thing is public opinion in all of these countries has turned very sharply against China. So in the past, that may have been a, a big constraint against governments from getting involved in helping the US. But at the moment, if you look at opinion polls, it's like 90% in Japan are afraid of China and have a negative view. Australia has been at the sharp end of Chinese power now for many years and is highly aware of the dangers as it sees of China. So there's a lot more willingness than before to get involved. It wouldn't be an easy decision. And as I say, I think it would depend on how a conflict developed, but none of them would want to see the US lose in a conflict, put it that way. And as the stakes rose, there would be more incentive for them to get more involved in different ways. Well, let's step back from the security and defence issues for a moment and talk about the current economic situation. You've studied the significance of Taiwan to the global economy. It's a relatively small place. It only has a population of about 24 million people. Why does it matter? Um, it, it has a, a fairly substantial economy of its own, but of course that pales in comparison to China's. However, it's Taiwan's location in the global manufacturing chains that makes it so important. And of course, this is clearest in information technology, and especially in the manufacture or fabrication uh, of silicon chips processors. And now Taiwan produces more than half of the world's processors, which is remarkable. And you know, not, they've been getting more recognition for that recently as the world faces a shortage of processors, especially in the automobile industry sector. Um, and, and then Taiwan suddenly people realize actually we rely on Taiwan for our information technology, our production, which also relies on these processes. So that is, is a remarkable feat for, for Taiwan to have achieved that because of Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, TSMC, which is located in Taiwan. So that I think is the most important thing for the global economy. What would happen to that in the event of any sort of conflict would, would, would be, 
highly disruptive. One of China's goals is the Made in China 2025 plan, um, and that includes looking at China's own chip industry to achieve a better self-sufficiency rate, looking at producing about 70% of its chips within mainland China. How would that change the dynamics of the relationship with Taiwan? Well, they, they would need Taiwan to achieve that goal. That's the irony. They couldn't do it without Taiwan. At the moment, they rely on, uh, I mean, you know, there's a different stages of manufacturing this high technology uh, and processes in particular. And still the design is done in the US. The fabrication is done in Taiwan and the assembly is done in China. So if you take out um, the US and the Taiwan part from that, China has to catch up on the most difficult parts of the production chain. So it's really not possible to do it without that cooperation. So China needs Taiwan to develop its own microchip industry. But uh, Taiwan also needs China, doesn't it? Because it's China, not Taiwan, that's the economic powerhouse in East Asia. Um, Xi Jinping said that he wants the Chinese economy to grow by more than 6% in 2021. So it's a symbiotic relationship, isn't it? They both need each other. Yeah, it is. And how does that affect politics? That's the question. So, of course, Taiwan needs China. I mean, most of its merchandise exports, I think about 60% now, go to, go to China. It's its biggest market. It needs it. But does that really give China much political leverage? If it did, I think they would have used it before. The problem is, if they start to impose sanctions on Taiwan, Taiwan will just look elsewhere, as it's been doing with its southbound policy towards Southeast Asia, with some success. If there's global decoupling led by the US, this will encourage Taiwan to look elsewhere. So that dependency will become less, not greater. Um, it will also have a negative impact on public perceptions of China in Taiwan. So it's like the use of military force. Uh, and ultimately underlying this, you've got to think if a, if a, a country, which I would call Taiwan, it, like any place, if their independence is at stake and their security, they will put that before their pockets and their, and their wealth. North Korea is the extreme example of a country that's under sanctions by just about everyone except China and puts up with a huge degree of poverty and so on. And, um, and it shows that economic leverage is not the way to break a country. And it, sanctions never really work. So I think the Chinese are aware of this. So what they try to do is target their sanctions on certain constituencies in Taiwan, like pineapple farmers at the moment, or fishermen, hoping that they can swing their votes in China's favor in elections. But it, it's really not that easy to manipulate a democracy and people see through it and they tend to take the money and then they'll vote the way they want to vote. So that's what's happened over the past two decades, really. Well, thank you, Christopher, for raising that wider issue about sanctions. That was Professor Christopher Hughes from the LSE. This podcast is produced by the SOAS China Institute, and you can find out more about our activities, including our latest courses and research, on our website, 
The website is SOAS, that's soas.ac.uk. Alternatively, you can type SOAS China Institute into a search engine and it should pop up straight away. But until next time, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team. <laughs>